This podcast is a production of the Berkshire Argus. Important stories fully told. My name is John Rosen. I run this Facebook discussion group called Fair Game. I've been running it for over seven years. It was a whole fight over nothing. Has that ever happened to you? Of course, it's happened to all of us. What's the point in this whole group? If all we're going to have are these collisions of different values, and neither of us are going to compromise on our values because we're both completely sure we're right, then what's the point of, of even going through this process? I still maintain that the last bastion, the last hope before violent conflict is discussion. Hi, everyone. This is Bill Shine from the Berkshire Argus. Now, I'm going to ask a question that I'm sure you know the answer to. Is it possible to have a thoughtful, constructive conversation about an important issue, including politics, in a social media comment thread? Yeah, I I pause there for a moment to let the laughter die down. Based on our daily experience, most everyone would say, no, it's not possible. Or if it is, it happens very rarely. We've all tried and we've all failed, sometimes losing our mind a little bit in the process, or posting something we later regret or apologize for. I've certainly done it. In 2016, John Rosen, fresh off his PhD studies in philosophy at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, started a Facebook discussion group called Fair Game where members engage in conversations about a variety of subjects, from politics to religion to arts and culture to just about any topic at all. He hoped it would provide what the group's guidelines describe as, quote, a forum for genuine inquiry and respectful dialogue, close quote. Originally from California, Rosen lives in Great Barrington, where he moved with his family more than 20 years ago. He's been a cab driver in New York City, hosted a long-running, absurdist variety show on public access cable there, and worked for a marketing company hired to come up with product names. Today, in addition to sometimes teaching philosophy, he's a novelist and screenwriter. In this troubling moment in our nation's discourse, which is so frequently overwhelmed by divisiveness and vitriol, personal attacks, not to mention false claims, speculation, and conjecture that many readily embrace as fact, I wanted to talk to someone who has tried very hard to create an online space for productive interaction and discussion. As you'll hear in our conversation, even with the best of intentions and a lot of effort, it doesn't always go well. And Fair Game is just a group of roughly 700 people from around the country, not just here in the Berkshires, so it's only a tiny example. And it's also by no means a representative cross-section of America. But it is a group of people trying to engage and think through questions large and small and learn from and try to understand each other. And when they disagree, to do so without discord. But that too often runs off the rails. All of which has taught Rosen some things I think you'll find interesting. At a time when nearly a quarter of Americans believe that violence is an acceptable strategy to advance their political beliefs, it's worth trying to understand this breakdown in communication 
that many feel is a runaway train that can only lead to disaster for American democracy. It's unclear if it's the technology that's driving what's happening, or those who populate our public sphere, or some combination. In the worst case, the two are locked in a feedback loop death spiral. Rosen's academic studies included a focus on how beliefs are formed, something that's central to the ways we seek out information, evaluate facts, and engage with others who see things differently, all of which is central to this moment. As Rosen says during this, this episode, once we've given up on discussion, we have given up on the greatest gift of humanity, which is our capacity to reason and our capacity to understand each other. My conversation with John Rosen runs about an hour and 10 minutes. You know, we may take pride in the fact that I happen to be a, a Democrat and, a, and an atheist or this or that, but it could have easily been the case that I wasn't. And it isn't because of a sort, sort of reasoning that I arrived at these uh, beliefs. I just happen to have gone through a certain kind of conditioning. And, you know, it, the output of the conditioning is that I happen to have arrived at this set of beliefs. So is there some part of when you studied this as part of your PhD where you, where you go through some structural way to unwind how you've come to your beliefs? Is, um, that, even, is that even possible? Or to, to try and examine your beliefs, to go back and figure out how you came to them? It's not that hard. Say you grow up in an orthodox religious community. You believe what you do because you want to please your parents and because you're not even aware that there's anything else to believe. These, these things take root early on and you become terrified and you identify with them and you've vilified people who don't believe in this stuff. And then it just kind of concretizes in your mind. And then it becomes incre incredibly difficult to uproot these beliefs. Is concretize a philosophical term? <laughs> uh, I like it. Could, it could be a philosophical yeah, term. Calcify or concretize or harden or crystallize. or That's kind of a word of the moment, concretize. You know, they just harden. Hopefully <laughs> at some point, you know, one of the best people to, to talk to about this is this woman named Megan Phelps Roper who was a member of the Westboro Baptist Church. Do you know about this church? Sure. And, uh, you know, she grew up with all these people. Maybe we should just get into this into this podcast. And we can... Well, I'm already recording, so... Oh, you are? Of course, yeah. Oh, okay. Um... okay. Well, my name is John Rosen. I run this Facebook discussion group called Fair Game. I've been running it for over seven years. I have a PhD in philosophy from UMass Amherst. I focused mostly on questions of self-constitution, agency, belief formation, and... Uh, yeah, I don't know what else to say about myself. Well, you, so you and I have known each other for probably 20 years or close to it. So that'll be my uh, my full disclosure. We've had a lot of conversations about many of the things that we'll, we'll talk about today. Uh -huh. But belief formation, you know, one of the things I know we, we talked about years ago, and it might have been before Fair Game, was the William James essay about what's required for someone to change their mind once yeah. they have a belief. Yeah, you recommended that to me. It's fantastic. Yeah. And was that, was that before your PhD study? No, it was during. But I had never seen it before, amazingly, because it's a great essay. Yeah. So what's your take on that subject from sort of writ large here between studying philosophy and also your experience with an online forum to explore what people believe about things? Is it possible for people to 
change their mind to come to a wholly different view of something? It's absolutely possible, and I think that William James's take on it is 100% dead correct. It's kind of a, a short masterpiece on the topic, because he says that from the beginning we have a set belief, and then we encounter some evidence that contradicts our belief, and habitually we just deny or sort of hide from that evidence. And then over time, little bits of evidence sort of creep in. We kind of have to accept it over time. And then once we accept the evidence, we have to sort of make all these minor adjustments because we have a whole network of beliefs because we want our beliefs to be consistent. So once something starts to contradict one of those beliefs, there are going to be ramifications through the rest of our belief network. So we're going to make small adjustments because it requires an enormous amount of effort to adjust all these other beliefs, not to mention the fact that it can be very personally threatening for a variety of reasons to change your belief systems. So it's kind of this battle of pushing away evidence that contradicts what we want to believe until finally the contradicting evidence becomes so overwhelming that it creates a kind of complete sort of belief overall. But that can take a lifetime. A version of that comes up in the conversation about politics, which we'll talk about some more. But the idea that because of how politics has become so embedded in our social relationships, that you know, take, for example, a simplistic example. Somebody is a huge Trump supporter or a huge Biden supporter, and they are confronted with information or points of view that maybe in a more accelerated way than what you're talking about, they change their mind. Or something happens when Trump's president, or like right now, there's people who are suddenly very upset with Biden about his Middle East policy and say that they couldn't vote for him. So turning points like that. But the impact on your social relationships, on the rest of your life, if you suddenly decide, you know what, I no longer believe that. I no longer right. going to support this politician that has been so integral to my social relationships. So how big of a factor is that in in people's changing their opinion when it becomes so embedded in their life beyond just the life of ideas? Well, I think part of what you're referring to is personal identity. And personal identity is very much linked up with our group or tribal identity, family identity, political group identity, and so forth. And these things are unbelievably important. Because if our friends are part of this group, if we have a whole community of people and we're part of this community and we all believe the same thing, then to change your mind about it will ultimately threaten your membership in your this community, your membership in your group, your tribe, and then ultimately some of the deepest held convictions you hold about yourself. So we don't want to disappoint the people who we love and who love us and part of that part of our relationships are often built on the commonality of our belief whether they're political or religious or otherwise right imagine if you're like an orthodox jew or an orthodox christian or whatever and suddenly you jump ship into another religion you have to vacate your whole community and that can be incredibly painful same thing with politics you lose your whole community especially when it's passionately held. I imagine it can be extremely threatening. So let's go back to the beginning. Yeah. So uh, you've run this forum, um, yeah. which despite the fact that you and I have had conversations about all of these issues for many years, I yeah. have not been a, a real part of Fair Game. I, I joined a year or two ago just yeah. to kind of lurk uh, yeah. because every time we got together, you would tell me about what was happening on, on Fair Game. And just describe first the nuts and bolts of it. Well, what is it? Where does it live? And how it came about? Sure. 
So Fair Game is a discussion group on Facebook. Uh, again, I've been running it now for about seven and a half years, amazingly, bizarrely, almost disturbingly. <laughs> uh, I started it because the general quality of discourse on my private Facebook page in the lead up to the 2016 election between Clinton and Trump had degenerated to such an extent that it was just absolutely vulgar. People were attacking each other on my private page. Friends who didn't know each other were just viciously ripping into each other. And I just find that kind of behavior so offensive and disturbing. And I was just so frustrated with it. And I saw Facebook as this... I mean, in retrospect, it almost seems kind of silly that I even had this dream, but, you know, you've got this new amazing technology where everyone all, all over the world in real time can engage in conversations. And I saw the quality of conversations that were being had on my private page, and I found them so unbelievably, depressingly terrible. And I thought, well, this can't go on. There must be a way to harness this technology to bring people together and to have productive, civil, respectful conversations, the kind of conversations that I've been having in graduate school when we'd sit around a seminar table and talk about basically anything, no matter how absurd, no matter how offensive, and nobody would be calling each other names or calling each other idiots or, or stomping out of the room or screaming or crying or pounding the table. I, I thought there must be a way to recreate some semblance of this environment on Facebook. So I created this group more out of necessity than anything, because at that point I wasn't uh, in classes anymore, but I desperately missed this kind of conversation, which is something I live for and which I, I actually need for my sanity. And I'm not exaggerating. I think I'd go crazy if I couldn't bounce ideas off of other people to try to understand things. And it wasn't really about politics for you, though. No, you, you know, no. The, the topics and conversations were not uh, no. not about politics. No, I mean, I'm interested in politics, and I'm extremely ignorant about politics, and I don't misrepresent myself at all. I know a few things about philosophy and literature and art, but when it comes to politics, I'm desperately ignorant. And I wanted to understand how politics works, but every time... I got into a political conversation or asked a question, people would just go berserk. So I, I didn't really create the group for political conversation. But the moment I created the group, the politics rushed in. And the politics could seemingly rush in uh, when any topic was brought up. It seems like I could have brought up a debate about whether or not to use colored shoelaces. And it would have become political at some point. So my motivation was not to create a political forum. Yeah, you wrote in the first guidelines to Fair Game in July of, of 2016 that you wanted it to be a forum for genuine inquiry and respectful dialogue. Yes. And I'll just note that having looked back at the, uh, the guidelines for Fair Game, <laughs> yeah. so that first set of guidelines that new members had to read, mm -hmm. uh, 280 words. Mm. Um, uh, six guidelines. The mm -hmm. seventh was to notify you or the other moderator if anyone was violating the other six. <laughs> Over the last seven and a half years, those guidelines have been revised 101 times. Mm. And now it's nearly 3,000 words. So it's gone from 200 something words to 3,000. 3,000. And that's not including the biographies oh, of okay. the, the half a dozen moderators. Oh, okay. Right. Um, 
That's hilarious. You, know, you, you told me the other day when we talked about what we would talk about here <laughs> that uh, you know, beyond a forum for genuine inquiry and respectful dialogue, you were looking for good faith engagement and quality conversation. Yes. So what does that mean? What is good faith engagement and what is a, a quality conversation? Well, Bill, as you know, before I ran Fair Game for a while, I had this local group called the Southern Berkshire Cup and Ball Society. Yes. Where, yeah, I want to talk about that. Where, yeah. I, where I would invite friends to cut, go out for beers and we sit around a table and we talk about stuff. And often I bring up questions that I was thinking about in my philosophy program or, or otherwise. And yep. what I mean is we'd sit around. Uh, we never attacked each other. We enjoyed each other's company. We would come up with a topic. We all respected each other's opinions. We would let each other talk without screaming over each other. In fact, for a while, we would, we passed around the kendama that's sort of right. coming above it. And when you had in your hand, you know, you could talk. I mean, to me, when, when those personal get-togethers went well, they were wonderful. I think everybody really liked it because we could hear what other people had to say about things. And we could explore ideas, which, you know, if done well in a good spirit can be extremely fun and interesting yeah. and exciting. And some of those were, uh, you would circulate a prompt or a yeah, question, yeah. which the joke was always, John has a paper he needs to write <laughs> for his, <Yeah. laughs> for a class, and we're going to help him flesh out yeah, those ideas. Yeah, and you were help, very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. So th that was local, yeah. um, just uh, people in the, in the Southern Berkshire community for the most part. And right. as I remember, the number of people could range from four or five to maybe a dozen or 15 yeah. sometimes. Right. So in that context, in person and also online, you know, what, what makes for that good faith engagement? And you know, what, what do you need to have a, a, a conversation that um, you know, is, is fruitful? It's actually, uh, uh, you know, on one level, totally obvious and really easy to explain. But the second you start digging a little deeper, it, can, it gets way more complicated. The short answer, the short and simple answer to your question is mutual respect. I respect your intelligence. I respect you as a person. I genuinely want to hear what you have to say. That's it. Mm. Nothing more than that. Because if I respect your point of view and I respect you as an individual, if I disagree with you, it's not because I think you're a moron. It's just because I disagree with you about this particular point. It's not because I think you're a bad person. It's just because I disagree with you in a particular point. And that's good faith engagement. It's just a respectful engagement. You like the person, you respect the person, and you're genuinely curious about what they think about something. That's it. So what's the difference then between the conversations in person over those four or five years, every month or two, yeah. and the kinds of conversations that happen online? <laughs> where, where shall I begin? <laughs> yeah. let, me, uh, let, me, let, me, let me tee that up for our, the, the, the conversation that will now go on for well, four or five hours. Well, look, let, let's, I'll, make it, I'll make it, you know... It's not, again, it's not that complicated. First of all, there are two main distinguishing characteristics that differentiate these two kinds of engagement. When it came to cup and ball, we all knew each other and we were all sitting in close proximity. And just for, for uh, explanation, cup and ball was the name of the kendama, the toy. Yeah, just it's a Japanese it. sort of 
toy that's now been kind of it's all over America now. You hold on to this thing and you you sort of flip this ball up onto a peg or into one of the. Cups. It's on a string and you're trying to get yeah. it to land on it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I kind of used that as kind of this physical kind of mascot for the group because it was just a really fun, beautiful, elegant kind of you know source of amusement. And our our conversations yeah. were usually just kind of fun. And for, right. so for a little while, it, it was sort of like the conch shell. Yeah, uh, yeah, in yeah. Lord of the Flies. So uh, in person, first of all, I think that, and to me, this is a little counterintuitive. You might think that when you're sitting behind a keyboard, you, you'd be able to exercise way more self-control uh, and that you could sort of shut the keyboard or walk away or take a deep breath. So it'd be easier to be polite if you were sitting at a computer. But it turns out that when you're sitting face to face with somebody, people tend to be far more cordial and friendly and respectful. It's counterintuitive. Mm. I, I would think that it'd be a lot easier when you're in the comfort of your home and you're leaning back on the couch eating potato chips. That, you know, well, you that's could... interesting. Is it counterintuitive? Because you know, everything we know from 20 years of online and of <laughs> discourse is that the ease with which you can fire off almost anything... That's pretty standard now. Uh, I think that's what's understood. It's that that seems um, the uh, what's the opposite of counterintuitive? Counter counterintuitive seems like that's the that's the baseline today. Is that if you are going to try and engage in some conversation online, you should expect that it's going to go off the rails pretty quickly. Why that's the case, uh, I don't I don't know. Uh, you know, it could be just the mere fact that you have a physical person. You can't like get away and just walk out of the room if you're talking to someone. So maybe it's being confined into this like direct personal physical dynamic with a person that constrains the spectrum of your behavior. Maybe it's the liberty of being able to shut your computer and walk away that gives you a sense of more liberty while you're sort of, you can be a keyboard warrior mm. a lot more than you can be an in-person combatant. Uh, I'm not really sure that it's an interesting question. So you, don't, you don't have to see the human response. If you were to take a conversation people had in a thread online yeah. and printed it out and gave two people or three people, whoever were engaged in the conversation and had them sit around a table and read them out loud to each other. Yeah. It would be interesting to see what the reaction would be. Yeah. Well, you know, facial expression and physicality, I think, uh, is, a, is a big dimension to in-person conversation. And you're right. You don't get any of that kind of physicality or, or direct eye contact or any of those things when you're in person. There are some people who I, I have gotten into rather heated engagements with while, while I'm typing, but they have very different personas. They have a very different persona when they're in person. They can be extremely congenial and, and, and conversational, personable in person. But when they're behind the keyboards, they can be far more um, aggressive and condescending and, and everything. So, yeah, there's something to be said. And, you know, it would be interesting to read some analysis of why people's behavior changes so much, whether they're behind a keyboard or not. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to get to is that, you know, when it came to our personal group, I knew everyone personally. But when it comes to fair game, there are hundreds of members, many of whom I've never met. So I don't know who these people are. 
And if you're more or less a stranger, I think it can be easier to just sort of blast off. So yeah, let's fill in some blanks there on people who are part of Fair Game. How mm-hmm. many are there? What's Where are they from? What, how would you describe them demographically? And how did they come to be part of this group over seven Well, years? you know, I just invited my friends. Uh, and shortly after I started the group, I invited, you know, a handful of people. And they invited their friends. So pretty much everyone in the group has been invited from a friend to a friend to a friend. I don't mm-hmm. advertise the group. I don't make any effort to bring in people from outside. Other mm-hmm. people are more than welcome to join it. You go to Fair Game, there are a few questions you have to answer. One of them is how interested are you in engaging with ideas different from your own? And people usually say, very interested. That often turns out not to be the case, but at least they think when they enter the group that they're interested in being confronted with ideas that are different from theirs. The overwhelming percentage of the members are liberal or on the left end of the political spectrum. There is a smaller number of vocal conservatives. Uh, When the group membership was around 750, that was about the peak. It's fallen off some, but, um, you know, I would say 95% of the members were probably uh, liberal. But again, there's a core of conservatives, and I'm very happy for that. In, In fact, they went out early on and found conservatives to join the group. Uh, so uh, I, I should mention that my interest in running this group really strengthened when Trump won the election because it blindsided me personally. And it showed me that my understanding of what was going on in our country was just incredibly underinformed. So when Trump won, uh, it was just like not a slap in the face. It was a punch right in the gut. And I realized, OK, I, I have no idea what's going on here. But by then, the was the the conversation in Fair Game must have been largely about the election. It started in the summer of 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. So by then, was that the dominant topic? I think most of the posts, generally speaking, have probably been political, but a lot of them are about philosophy, psychology, relationships, mm-hmm. uh, sexual issues, uh, artistic things. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, part part of the reason I love it is because of the the great spectrum of of posts, but. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so, you know, I brought some conservatives into the group at that point, and then things, once the conservatives started to speak in the group, that's when things started to get really interesting. Um, and so yeah, you, 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 and you told me disturbing. that you told me that among the list of reasons in your interest in, in hosting this kind of a forum yeah. is that you value what you call the collisions between various points of view. So uh, yeah, talk, talk about that. What does that mean? Yes, I value the collisions between different points of view extremely highly. Mm-hmm. And the people in the group, same thing? The ones who are most engaged? I don't think that... I think the best members of the group value those collisions. In fact, the best reason to be in the group is to observe these collisions and, in fact, and then take part in them. Because it's through these collisions that you can see different perspectives running up against each other. And each perspective is informed by its own distinct set of news sources and its own fact base and its own interpretation of facts. And in these collisions, if they're done respectfully, and if you're watching it and don't know anything, then you can almost triangulate these issues and you can see each person testing each other's viewpoints out and you can see 
for example, I don't follow many conservative news sources. In fact, I don't really, I'm not a big news consumer in general, but, you know, I, I, I take in what, what most people probably do, you know, the, you know, bite-sized facts from, or, or bite-sized, I shouldn't, you know, I guess we're in a post-factual age now, or, mm. you know, bits of information coming in from left and right. Um, and it's really nice to see them collide um, because it provides a kind of access to the nuances and the gray areas in some of these issues. And you can see certain arguments or certain points of view being defeated by other points of evidence. Look, they just bring a lot of information to bear in these collisions that you otherwise wouldn't get. Because if you listen to individual news sources, right, they're going to be coming from their perspective. If they're a good news source, they'll have someone on their news channel and for a debate. Mm -hmm. But the debate doesn't happen all that often. You know, you get like very, um, what do you call it? Um, Echo chamber? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, echo chamber groups. And I'm not interested in echo chamber. So yeah, so talk, talk about that. How, how, do, how do topics get uh, entered into the conversation in the group? And uh, you know, how, how does it work? Well, anybody of... can post on whatever they want. Okay. Um, and for a long time, there was no vetting. Anyone could post and the post would just show up instantly on fair game. But after about five years, uh, the moderators decided that we would start vetting posts. And there were a, a host of reasons for this. But the biggest reason was posts would come in and they just wouldn't be appropriate. And for a variety of reasons, a post. So, you know, one thing a post pr pretty much has to have is a question. You're asking a question. Ideally, the reason you're posting is because you're genuinely interested in a topic. You want to know something about it. You're curious about what other people think. Mm -hmm. Fair game isn't a place to make announcements, isn't a place to sort of, you know, you know, blow your horn about something. It's a place to explore ideas, mm -hmm. right? Um, but some posts would come in and they wouldn't be genuinely exploratory. They would be like a list of insults, uh, you know. So-and-so did this, 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 this. How can he be such a moron? Hmm. So that's, that's not a real question. That's saying, this man is a moron. Let's all contribute to how much of a moron we think he is. Right, so and there were, there were a good number of posts like that. And then the moderators would get all, you know, there were seven of us. And it was just too time-consuming. So, so. That, so that kind of a post, I mean, that sounds like, more typical social media post, right? Oh, we very much yeah, so. People yeah, people sort of, you know, want to yeah. vent about something. Right. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the kinds of topics that become part of Fair Game. And I, I, I told you yesterday that the, the recent ones I looked at, there's the, you know, your longstanding thread since you started studying philosophy about uh, free will. Mm -hmm. There was a, a post about that that had 115 comments in the mm -hmm. conversation. Yeah. There was a post a few days back about RFK Jr. running as an independent, and that had 116 comments mm -hmm. uh, in the thread. And then there was a post that you made about uh, whether anybody had ever been intimidated by a bakery. Mm, uh, and yeah. there being, I guess, too much, too many things to choose from. Uh, oh, no, the, the, the things were too fancy. They, they were, they intimidated me. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. So there were, there were 16 comments uh, uh, about that. So, so why don't you, you know, describe a little bit about, you know, in, in trying to, to create a community of conversation mm -hmm. about the, the, the full range of topics. Um, yeah. you know, serious and less so, yes. um, you know, what, which ones have become the most interesting conversations over time, which have become the most controversial, uh, and which have become the most uh, problematic as far as trying to moderate uh, a conversation? The most controversial topic, amazingly, and this really surprised me, was anything having to do with religion. 
So um, someone posted a while ago, basically making a claim, if I was interpreting it, and I've actually done this post before, where essentially saying that uh, even atheists or self-avowed atheists still believe in some version of God or something that might as well be a God or have, you know, a set of beliefs they have that are based on faith and not real factual evidence. So essentially they were saying, this person was suggesting that someone who identifies as an atheist may not actually be an atheist, may still believe in something that might as well be a god. And there is a set of people in the group who really get bothered by religion, um, you know, organized religion. And just uh, go to town, or just get really offended. I actually, when I did this post uh, years ago, I was accused of trolling my own page. Like, they couldn't believe that I was being sincere. So trolling, just to define that for people who might not know exactly what that means. That well, means... I, you know, it, 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 a, a long conversation can be had about what precisely trolling is. But I guess, and it's been a while since I've looked up the exact definition, but... Essentially, it is a post that is fundamentally designed to rile people up, to, to be subversive, to be incendiary. Um, it's not a post that's made with good faith, to in good faith and with sincerity. It's a manipulative, subversive post intended to piss people off, basically. Or that's insincere or has some subversive ulterior motive involved. So I think people were, when I posted on this, people thought I was trolling. They accused me of trolling. I was astounded by it. But that just goes to show you how deep the resentful is. I mean, people, a lot of people carry incredibly deep resent, uh, resentment about religion. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's been a very, very controversial post. So, so, the, so the other one, hold on. Yeah, the other one, okay. interestingly, relatedly, and you brought it up before, uh, is actually the free will topic. And people have gotten extremely uh, upset about that. And it's funny because recently, you know, uh, that um, neurologist from Stanford, Sapolsky, I think is his name, um, you know, published this book called Determined, uh, which is a refutation of free will. And it came up again. I posted on it. Mm -hmm. And people tend to get extremely um, angry uh, and uh, even um, uh, very aggressive uh, when this topic comes up. Well, let's actually, I want to talk to you about that, the, and two parts to that. One is the idea that you've studied about how people come to have the beliefs that they have. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way you've talked about that at different times is that, um, and, or a question that you've asked is whether people can be held responsible, um, and correct me if I'm, if I'm framing this correctly, whether they can be responsible for those beliefs because their beliefs grow out of uh, the different experiences that they've had, and they may not necessarily be, you know, you, when you form your beliefs, you're not taking in information, evaluating it, and then deciding what your belief is. So, so talk a little bit about that in the context of, uh, you know, certainly, you know, I don't want to go too far in the weeds into philosophy, but the idea of, of how people uh, form those beliefs, and then in, in moderating this, this forum on a topic like religion where people are going to have very strong beliefs and they're not going to be dissuaded from them. Let's use that as a way to, into, to how do you moderate a forum to keep it uh, constructive and, and useful and, and meeting the goal that you set for, for fair game. First of all, thank you for asking that question. And you phrased it perfectly. Uh, in terms of the question about in philosophy, they call it the fancy way, 
fancy term for it is doxastic agency, the freedom that we can exercise with respect to forming our own beliefs. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say dox, <laughs> so I, I, you know, it's a tongue twister. Yeah, well, I spent some yeah. time in grad school and it's just, a, it's just a fancy, I think it's the Greek word, doxa means belief, uh, I think. Ooh, I hope I'm not getting that wrong. In any case, uh, yeah, there is this question about to what extent can we exercise any freedom or agency uh, over the development of our own beliefs? And a lot of work has been done on this in, uh, in philosophy. And yes, you know, I, I have been led to the conclusion that uh, we don't exercise any sort of robust freedom, uh, um, what we would consider to be free agency with respect to the development of our beliefs for a, a wide variety of reasons. The easiest way to understand this and the most intuitively plausible way to understand this is you just have to think about people growing up in an orthodox or religious household. You know, when you're a kid, you don't have the ability to challenge, you know, these beliefs. They just pour in, you know, and, and you grow up with your parents and they're telling you what's the case. And they give you a book that confirms everything they say. And you grow up in a community, you go to a church or a temple or a mosque or whatever it is. And then you just, you buy it. And, you know, you can just, a way to sort of put the sort of absurdity of this into perspective is just to imagine a mistake of birth. Someone, you know, flips around you and some other kid, and you were supposed to grow up in a Jewish household, but whoops, you grow up in a Catholic household. Now, what, do you think that you're going to have some native sort of, you know, Jewish predisposition that's just going to sort of burn through the Catholicism that you're going to be taught in religious school? No, it's, it's a silly uh, proposition. You're mm -hmm. going to go to, a, you know, whatever, you know, Christian school, be brought up with that, be brought up in the, in the church, um, and you're going to have a completely different set of beliefs. Now, some people will say that at a certain age, you develop these critical reasoning faculties. And in virtue of these critical reasoning faculties, you can sort of pull out of your environment and pull out of your conditioning and reflect objectively on these things. But all the studies of, you know, reasoning and belief formation suggest that it's basic, it's almost impossible for people to do this. I mean, some people can. And, you know, I brought up earlier, you know, this case of Megan Phelps Roper from the Westboro Baptist Church. She wrote a book called Unfollow, and she gave a really interesting TED talk about this. So she was brought up in this church um, that had a lot of really kind of wacky and, and, and destructive beliefs. And at some point... She met someone online and had a conversation, I think with a Jewish guy, and slowly but surely, you know, as William James says in his great essay, The Will to Believe, wait, is it The Will to Believe or, or it's How Beliefs Are Formed? I forgot the title of it. In any case, over the course of these conversations, her faith in her, in the credibility of her own beliefs was kind of whittled away and ultimately she was converted and she wound up marrying this Jewish guy, by the way. Hmm. Um, but in general, when it comes to the question of how to na uh, sort of navigate or manage a group with this understanding that people can exercise so little power over their own belief system. This is a really interesting question and a really interesting kind of insight into how people correspond with each other. And my way of, of dealing with it is mostly to just observe. 
and to learn about people. You know, from my perspective, this running this group has been a bit of an anthropological study or a psychological study just to see how people respond to each other. So when you say observe, you mean uh, someone posts something and there's comments and a conversation going back and forth and you would, from the sidelines, watch and see how people interact and sort of poke at each other's beliefs. Yes, because, you know, you'll see these people and they will just go at it and go at it and go at it and neither side will concede an inch in these conversations Bill, well, they will go on for days, weeks, months, especially when it comes to religious people mm-hmm. and more you know, atheists. How, how often do you see anybody concede uh, a point, uh, a, a significant point on any subject? So another great question. When it comes to core beliefs, and by core beliefs, I believe, you know, it, it comes to beliefs about like sexuality or religion or even maybe fundamental political orientation, never, mm. basically never. Hmm. When you get to more kind of superficial beliefs, it can happen fairly frequently. I mean, look, if we're going to have a conversation about who really deserved the Oscar, or some beliefs that can be clearly altered by, you know, exposure to some factual evidence. So, you know, if I can... If I can introduce a fact that directly contradicts your belief, and it's a superficial belief, um, you know, what was the heaviest tuna ever caught, mm-hmm. or or some you know kind of silly thing like that? Yeah, you know, people are are happy to change their minds, but you know, if we're going to get into some debate over, say, the the Israel Palestinian conflict or some kind of history of religion or something like this, there's no way people. I've never seen any evidence whatsoever of anybody even remotely changing a single view about a, a core belief. So, so that's interesting. So we, we've, we, you know, it's interesting because um, where this intersects with, uh, you know, whether it's the Berkshire Argus or any sort of journalistic venture or journalistic work in this moment where you're trying to uh, to present facts and information from reporting to provide the basis for conversation or debates about issues large and small. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and uh, I'm going to point you back to the about section of Fair Game. There's a quote, yeah. the first quote. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember what it is. Um, the first quote is from Nelson Mandela. Ah. Uh, and it is, no problem is so deep that it cannot be overcome given the will of all parties through discussion and negotiation rather than force and violence. So that's, you know, an interesting uh, quote to consider in, in this moment, obviously, oh, with gosh. what's happening in, uh, you know, uh, in the, the, the I, conflict in the Middle East. Um, I, and, I, listen, I, sorry for interrupting, Bill, yeah. but, you know, a lot of people would just laugh that quote these days right out the door. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the amount of cynicism these days, and like, to think that we can just start talking at this point. A lot of people have left the group and criticized me because they think that, that even the whole ambition to have so-called civil discourse in the present climate is not only idealistic and naive, but dangerous and destructive. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. You've talked about uh, people that, that left the group in, in heated moments, arguing that by allowing some people to participate in this, in a conversation, that you're platforming fascist ideas. Yes. And you're giving them a, a place where they shouldn't even be allowed to share those ideas. So th- let's talk a little bit about that in the, the context of free speech and, and this moment. Yeah. You know, what, what's your take on that? And uh, you know, what have you learned from having to engage with that in a, in a small way? So somebody uh, messaged me a couple of years ago, a really bright guy in the group, and he said, John, what if they're right? 
What if it turns out that we're actually in the beginning of some kind of third Reichian period in the United States? And, and what if this guy was, is a liberal and a lot of liberals I know. We actually, had, uh, we actually had a poll at one point where liberals were asked, do you regard Donald Trump as basically a modern day Adolf Hitler. And the overwhelming majority of them said they believed he was mm. and, that, and, and that if, and the conservatives who followed him were essentially Nazis. And so this guy sent me this message and he said, you know, what if it turns out that we really have entered some kind of, you know, earlier proto kind of Nazi fat or fascist phase in America? Um, how will you feel looking back if you see that you were platforming people with these extremely dangerous and toxic ideas. And my answer to that question was, after a long pause uh, and some thought, um, I need to run this group. And uh, as of yet, I don't see, and I might be naive here or ignorant, but I don't see sufficient evidence to support the contention that we've entered into a kind of third Reichian phase hmm. in this country. And even if we have, I still maintain that the last bastion, the last hope before violent conflict is discussion. And once mm -hmm. we've given up on discussion, we have given up on the, the greatest sort of gift of humanity, which is our, our capacity to reason and our capacity to engage in, you know, elevated uh, discourse and, and, and compromise and understand each other mm -hmm. uh, rationally. Once you have truly given up on conversation, the next step is violence. And to me, violence is the absolute worst case scenario. I, I'm not necessarily a pacifist. I think sometimes, you know, violence is called for. I just think that is the worst case scenario. And if there's any way to avoid violence, then it should be avoided. So let's talk about that in the, in the context of the political moment. There was a poll, and it's been done consistently now since January 6th, um, asking Americans whether things have gotten so far off track in America, and that's a quote from the, from the poll, uh, that violence is an acceptable means of political engagement. And in, a couple of months after January 6th, there were 15% of Americans who said that, yes, violence is acceptable. And they just did the poll again last month and showed that that's now up to 23%. And of that 23%, it's 33% of Republicans, of all Republicans, 15% of independents, and 13% of Democrats. So clearly inching towards a belief that, uh, and, and you've seen it in the discourse on both on the left and the right, saying that the other side is pushing our notion of democratic ideals too far off the rails that the only thing we can do is consider whether violence is going to be necessary. Well, that's, uh, that's very disturbing. And there have been posts, you know, at Fair Game, are we heading towards a civil war? Could there be some kind of actual war in this country? I hope not. I don't know. Uh, that would be awful. Uh, I, I don't have enough insight into the country and into, the, you know, sociology and the politics politics in this country to make any confident predictions about that. In the moderation of the conversations that you've, uh, since now you have, you, know, you started this group, it was you and one other person who were the moderators, yeah. but you weren't even looking at posts before they went up. And now right. you've got half mm -hmm. a dozen or so who have, I guess, at the busiest times had to sort of share that, that responsibility. So what's yeah. that like in, in thinking about in a tense moment and a potentially violent moment, how do you moderate 
conversations in this, you know, the small little corner of the, uh, you know, of the online world and the small corner of the larger world where well, people do want to have some engagement. So part of the reason why we started um, vetting posts, uh, there were two reasons. One is that the posts were, uh, some of them were just really lousy posts. But, you know, another issue comes with moderating hostile behavior. So in the early goings, um, there were a lot, a lot more people in the group who would um, just attack members. So they would come into the group, they would know the whole point was, as, as it's written, civil discourse, respectful discourse. But it turned out they weren't actually interested in that. They would attack, they would go on attack. And when you'd ask them, hey, you know, why are you attacking? You know, it says right here, like, if you look at the, um, if you look through the endless guidelines, there's this whole part about good faith engagement. And I would say, or like, you know, don't, the first guideline is no attacks, no calling name, no name calling this. And they would just violate all the guidelines right away. Mm -hmm. And I would, you know, as a moderator, you know, we write something, we say moderator input, you know, can you please, you've made an ad hominem here, you're attacking, you're um, violating the guidelines. And then they would get back and say, well, this person isn't engaging in good faith. Why should I not attack a person uh, if this person isn't engaging in good, good faith? These were all between liberals and conservatives, by the way. Were these typically, these were... Uh, on issues of politics as opposed to uh, everything? Uh, 99% of the time. Yeah, politics tends to bring out the worst in people. Uh, politics, religion, and free will. <laughs> um, we can talk about Tom Cruise, you know, all day. Tom Cruise, you know, ironically seems to bring the best out of people. I know you have strong feelings about Tom Cruise, and we'll, we'll, have, to do another, we'll have to do another show about that. <laughs> uh, anyhow, so... So the more kind of aggressive members, we would moderate them a few times and they would just get so angry, they would just leave the group. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned, the liberals who got really pissed off, and I would work really hard with these people. Like, I have like personal messaging dialogues with people that went on and on over months and months working with them because they were brilliant. These were brilliant people and I wanted them to contribute to the group because they clearly had expertise and insight into all kinds of interesting things, but they couldn't control their temper. They couldn't do it. Hmm. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't do can, it. Can you describe, just for a little more context, describe that, the, you know, obviously we're not going to talk about individual people, but can you describe, give some examples of the kinds of people that are, are in this group, where they're from, what their backgrounds are. You know, I noticed just looking at the moderators, it seems a pretty diverse group with diverse backgrounds. Well, um, I, you know, to be honest, I, I really haven't spent much time looking into that. Uh, okay. Look, when it comes to where people are from, you know, there's maybe 50 or 60 people who are from the Berkshires because mm -hmm. we have local friends. Then there's a bunch of people from New York City. There's a bunch of people from the West Coast because I grew up on the West Coast, so I have some friends there. I went to school for, at UCLA for a while, so I made, made some friends there. And then there's some people from... Um, uh, a few people from England, I think, were in the group. Okay. And it's about seven, 700 people right now. Well, the 700 people, but a, 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 very, a small fraction of that actually are regular contributors. Mm -hmm. um, as to what they do for a living, I really haven't put much thought into that. Um, okay. I think the male to female uh, uh, percentages are something like 45% uh, female, 55% male, or something like that, maybe 60, 40, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And it's mostly, uh, I think, mostly a white uh, community. There are some other minorities uh, represented in the group, but they are minority, they do have minority representation, um, which is too bad, but it's the way it is. Uh, I haven't made any effort to 
I really haven't made any reaching out efforts at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I meet someone who I think will be interested or who would like the group, I invite them no matter yeah. who they are. Yeah, and other people in the group can invite other people Anybody. As well. I mean, yeah. the, the, and I really don't pay much attention to, I mean, I just read. I read mm-hmm. what people write, mm-hmm. and then I see a little square with a face in it, but I don't even look at the face. And I, I, I really haven't put much research into who these people are, to be honest. I'm, I'm merely interested in you know, what, what they think about hmm. things. So you think that's different than in the broader world of, of social media where, you know, friends of friends see posts from other people. They don't know who they are. You know, they're not in an environment where they've got some guidelines about what kind of conversation that is trying to be catalyzed. So they're more likely in sort of general social media world to, to just sort of launch little attacks or tell people they're an idiot or other things. Well, as I was going to say, the really aggressive liberals peeled off and created their own group. And now their group is an echo chamber. And at first, you know, there's, there was some, you know, there were some snide remarks about fair game and some insults about fair game. But so I, when people who are in fair game, who are liberals say, and they just can't, they're like, they're like pit bulls and they just cannot control themselves. Eventually I'll, I'll work with them. I'll explain to them, like, look, man, you know, you just, you got to mellow out. You know, you're coming in, you're accusing people of this and that. And if they can't do it, I direct them to the offshoot group because the offshoot group is a wonderful place for these people. Mm. I'm a member of that group. I know. Yeah. And I watch it. And all they do is tee off all day <laughs> on the other side and they enjoy it. You know, yeah. it, it, it is an echo chamber, an unapologetic echo chamber. Mm-hmm. The conservatives who felt sort of ganged up on by the liberals and got sick, sick of the group, and they started leaving, they formed their own group, which is a, which was a conservative echo chamber. There weren't any. And I was a member of that, too. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I mean, they were fine to let me. I, didn't, I never really contributed to them because I already spent too much time uh, doing this. But uh, so, you know, there were these spinoff groups that came from people who felt like, Fair game essentially wasn't being adequately moderated. And, and mm-hmm. I have to say, and I don't know if you want to get into this, but, you know, I've taken a personal toll in writing this. I get insulted and criticized for running a crappy group, for mm-hmm. being um, uh, biased in terms of who I moderate, mm-hmm. for picking on certain individuals and not picking on others. For a long time, uh, people accused me of having conservative bias, being easy on the conservatives in the group. So, so that's interesting. So, let me add some context here. Maybe we can sort of widen this out to, to what does this mean? I mean, we're talking about a you know one tiny little slice of of discourse in the online world where the goal was to try and create something that was more a little more thoughtful and interesting to a group of people than what they would generally find online. As you know, so I, my, my experience in online. Interaction goes back to the mid-90s when I was a, a columnist for America Online and had what back then were called message boards, uh, so pre-social media, and had a, an early experience in 97, 98, 99 of trying to, to moderate uh, the things people were talking about. And it was about politics, but other things, it was a humor site on AOL, so it was people trying to be funny. But back then it was essentially the same as it is now in the the speed with which 
people turn on each other. And the old the sort of hack joke is it almost doesn't even matter what the subject is. You post a recipe and people start commenting. And by the sixth comment, someone's calling someone else Hitler. And, you know. Reducto ad Hitler. Hitlerum is the Exactly, right. Right. Exactly. So, you know, and, and the, what, what interests me about, you know, this conversation and, and the goal of, of Fair Game is, you know, whether we're at a moment where this is even possible. And if it's not, what is that going to mean? Or have we become so overwhelmed by the what's what's typical on social media, what passes for journalism today or information sources? It's all become this fire hose of opinion, conjecture, vitriol. And uh, if we are at that moment where people are, are thinking about whether violence is the answer to something that they don't like where things are going, to go back to what Mandela said in that quote, is there some anything to be learned here about the discussion and you know the, the word that Mandela used is negotiation, not that you're going to convince people, you know, and, and again, this is timely given what's happening in the Middle East, you're not going to change, you know, someone's not going to have a, a 180 change in their point of view or their opinion, but in this idea of negotiation and finding enough common ground to move forward and avoid violence, um, you know, what's possible? Right. Great question. So one of the people who is sort of a guiding light here, her name is Julia Galath, and she wrote a book called Scout Mindset. And she distinguishes between these two different kinds of mindset, which she calls scout mindset and soldier mindset. And soldier mindset is the aggressive, you know, warlike mindset. You go in, you have a goal, you know, accomplish X, you know, attack Y. Scout mindset is just a mindset that's trying to get a clear read on what's actually going on in the world. And, you know, when people ask me what fair game is really about, I say it's principally about scout mindset. It's about just trying to understand what's going on. That's, for me, that is the principal motivation for creating the group and, to me, the best, greatest benefit of being part of it. Because if you don't know very much, to see these very bright people, and there are, I, I have you know, tremendous respect for the members of this group, especially those who have held out through all of this, to see them discuss these topics with intelligence uh, is uh, a great benefit to me, just to understand what's going on. So to the extent that these conversations can actually give people a clearer sense of what's going on, it can mitigate or, or diminish uh, the probability of irresponsible or reckless action. You know, there's a great quote from The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, which I reread ominously uh, yesterday, where he says, I think, um, uh, the best lack all conviction and the worst are full of passionate intensity. I think we would do better to um, lack some a little conviction. I mean, you know, there are so many of these issues that are so gray and so complex that by the time you really thought them through, we don't really know what to make of them. You know, this this was the whole Socratic, you know, mission where Socrates went around questioning authorities on everyone and realized, you know, after over the course of questioning, he would leave them all in this state of just kind of numb perplexity. You know, it's this overwhelming cert certainty or conviction that can lead us to making violent and rash decisions. You know, a lot of the time we don't even, we're operating on a completely false picture of what's actually going on. 
And, you know, when we can kind of get away from that and get away from this confusion and just try to have a more, dare I use the word, kind of empathetic understanding of, of each other as more kind of fundamental human creatures with human feelings and human uh, engagements, I think we can have, you know, generally a, a more compassionate uh, outlook on people. A lot of this political confusion and kind of havoc that's that, that that has invaded our consciousness that I think can set us against each other. Often, you ever gotten into a fight with somebody, a horrible argument, you realize after the whole thing that both of us just didn't, like we were talking past each other and didn't even know what was going on. It was a whole fight over nothing. Has that ever happened to you? Of course, it's happened to all of us that we get into fights over nothing. We were literally misinformed the whole time. So in as much as this group, this tiny little island in this ocean of informational chaos, insofar as this little island can help people arrive at some, let's just say, more accurate understanding or assessment of what's actually going on, in this tiny respect, um, people who participate in this group can maybe act with a little bit more understanding or not act with less understanding. <laughs> Do you think in this moment, whether it's the pace of change, the um, you know a, a, a politics that has a lot of that passionate intensity and of interest to me, this sort of moment in our journalism where part of the strategy, uh, widespread strategy now, is try and undermine the source of information if you don't like the facts, if you don't oh. like like the information. Yeah. So is is it? The, uh, the, the intensity of or and the speed with which people go at each other online mm. when you're mm. trying to have a conversation uh, and the, the degree to which they hang on to their beliefs is, is some of that simply because they're just trying to, to maintain some footing uh, in a, uh, the, the overall tumult and that by you know, even opening the door to rethinking something, it creates additional uncertainty and, uh, and instability that, that the people can't quite... I think that's definitely part of it because remember that we're deep, especially when we get older, we get more and more deeply rooted in our identity. I am X and my X, X includes this set of beliefs or this set of commitments. And we tend to defend, as again, Williams James says in the article, we tend to defend our belief systems, especially because they define us, right? Hmm. Who am I? Like if all of my beliefs were to change, I wouldn't even be myself anymore. Yeah. The deeper motivation some people have to defend their beliefs is that they actually believe that they're that what they believe is right and superior to what other people believe. So what we're seeing in culture now is not just a war of ideas, but a war of values. And this mm -hmm. is where someone like Jonathan Haidt, for example, um, uh, you know, why I forget the title, but why the righteous mind and. And who, tell, who is he? Uh, he's a sociologist at NYU, and he's done some work on this moral foundation theory, and he's explored like why smart people get into these terrible political conflicts, and he attributes it to just these fundamental values that are the springboards for the political convictions we have. A lot of our beliefs have to do with a set of values about you know, loyalty, purity, responsibility, and when you have these values and you think these values lead to a good society and you see other values that are coming to threaten uh, your conception of your own values in a good society, then you see these foreign values literally as a kind of threat to 
the world that you think is livable, the, the world in which you can live and thrive. It's basically a threat to your entire culture. So, you know, a, a lot of people, when it would come to these discussions in fair game, usually between conservatives and, and liberals, you see this, these clashes of ultimately values. Um, and they would come to these impasses. And I would have like people, conservatives, both conservatives and they would, and liberals, and they would message me privately and they'd say, John, I don't know what to do at this point. I mean, we've kind of bottomed out here. These are my values. These are his values. These values are colliding. I'm not giving up my values. He's not giving up his values. What's the point? What's the point in this whole group? If all we're going to have are these collisions of different values and neither of us are going to compromise on our values because we're both completely sure we're right, then what's the point of, of even going through this process? And what would, you, what would you, your answer be? I don't really have an answer. <laughs> I don't really have an answer. But have you? Uh, but have you said there's? I mean, there's a value in in that exploration, even if at the end. Uh, yes. So here's the. So okay. So here's what I what I would tell these people. Sometimes I would say, listen, um, you may not see any value in this, but there are people who are listening to your conversation, right? Who are learning from you. So I mean, this is a benefit. So. Look, I don't participate in a lot of conversations. I read, you know, a fair amount of what's going on and I learn from these people and it's interesting. So, you know, I didn't have a lot of conservative friends at the time and I didn't really understand conservative values per se. I know them and I understand them a lot better now. And that's from listening to them. And when you really listen to somebody and can you can understand where they're coming from, then you can begin to have some empathy or sympathy, even if you disagree with them which, you know, I, I might disagree with a set of conservative views. Once you can understand the foundation and why they think they're so important, then you can actually, and you asked about negotiation earlier, then you can enter into negotiation in good faith. And the in good faith is the important part. Because if I'm going to enter into a negotiation and think I'm negotiate, negotiating with a moral monster, a complete idiotic moral monster, which is how each side sees the other side at this point, forget it. It's going to be hostile. Things are going to break down. There's going to be no trust. There's going to be no faith. But if I enter into the negotiation and I see where they're coming from, and I can see that underlying these things, um, and this is hype goes into this, you know, there are these shared values. We all have a set of these values. One people on one side of the spectrum have them in different proportions than people on the other. But essentially, we all love our kids, right? We don't want our kids to suffer. We don't want to starve. We want to be able to enjoy a set of freedoms. So there are these, there, there are all these areas that we, we do intersect and understand each other. And when you can give some people at least the benefit of the doubt, when it comes to these fundamental existential elements or uh, ingredients to, to who they are, then you can treat them as, as persons and not as moral monsters. Well, you know, that, that's what's interesting to, to hear you describe the importance of listening. But you said that by and large, you don't know very much about the people in the group that are in these conversations, what they do for a living, other things. And there's certainly a line of argument that people would make that an essential component of understanding people's point of view and whether it's finding common ground or negotiation or you're turning down the temperature is 
getting to know people in a personal way, separate from these particular issues. And that without that, and in this world where we are increasingly in our own camps, online is is only one place, but we're demographically and geographically, our communities are very like-minded and we're not interacting or bumping up against people with different points of view and different experiences Mm -hmm. as often as we used to. That's one of the reasons among people who support some idea of a, a year of national service in this country, where you would end up spending a year doing some kind of service work somewhere else in the country in a totally different kind of community and getting to know people that are very different from you. Obviously, you can't do that online in, in quite the same way. But is is that the reason why there's so much hostility in most online conversations is that people are just a little icon of their face and a name. And even if you know someone a little bit, for the most part, uh, you don't. It could be It could be that people just see other people as representatives of X belief system or X policy or X value or, you know, whatever it is, they don't see them as multifaceted individuals. Hmm. Listen, I, it, it's not that, look, I, I don't know that much about people, but I do things on Fair Game called Fair Game Projects. And I, I invite Fair Game members to talk about what they're doing in their lives. So I reach out and I say, what are you working on? What project are you working on? And you can advertise whatever your products are. If you're like, uh, whatever you're selling, or if you have a business, you know, so once a month, we give people an opportunity to sort of feature parts of their... Um, yeah, what are those conversations like? Um, they're generally supportive. You know, someone mm-hmm. will say, I'm working on my porch, and they'll take a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Or someone <laughs> will say, I just published a paper in this magazine, and, and, and they'll post uh, a link to it. Is so, the sixth comment on the post about the porch, uh, hey, that looks like Hitler's porch. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, just... I, I think generally speaking, over the years, the people who have stuck it out, I think, have earned the respect and, and you know, the um, the favor of other people in the group. Because you really have to have a tough stomach to endure all of this. And I, I think that, you know, even the people who have left the group in a rage and, and who have hated me for moderating them, and I, by the way, I hate moderating people, cannot deny that the environment that has been created at Fair Game is unique. They would Hmm. love to deny it. Hmm. They would love to say Fair Game is just an incubation chamber for fascists or whatever the hell they want to say about it. But they could not say that uh, in in good faith. They couldn't do it. It's a good moderator. Our moderators are fantastic. They've all got experience dealing with people in stressful situations. They're leaders in their community. And when we get together and we talk about problems that arise at Fair Game, we have incredibly good conversations. We rarely have any disagreements. There's no bitterness. It's an extremely supportive set of moderators. And we've created a, a community there that even though it's died down, as I said, over the last several months, the posts are still fantastic and it's a generally supportive group. And uh, and ultimately, in, in spite of the stress of running it and some of the kind of bleaker kind of facts about human nature that have been revealed running the group, I really still value it. So yeah, that leads right into to what I'd like to wrap up with, um, which is if you were starting this from scratch today or someone else hears this conversation and thinks, I'd like to start some kind of a, a forum for conversation, what would be uh, your advice after or seven years? Uh, and you, you had said to me the other day when I asked you what you learned from all these years of moderating these conversations, you said that you gained sobering insights about people and how they relate. Indeed. 
Um, so th those two things together, what have you learned about people, how they relate? And if you were going to, or if someone wanted to start a forum like this, what would you recommend? What would be your advice? Uh, I'm going to address the second question first. If someone wants to start a group like this, and I say this dead seriously, start seeing a therapist or find some other way to keep your sanity and your stress levels in check. Because running a group like this is basically impossible. I don't think that a, that a healthy human being can run a group like this. You know, I was interested. You, you told me that the moderators get together for chats and you know, when you're, you're working through things. And that reminded me of the fact that even the fact that you mentioned therapists, I mean, that's part of being a therapist is that you see a therapist to work through the things that... Uh, yeah, and I know, do that, see a therapist. Yeah. I, I genuinely think that the demands that this group um, make upon an individual who wants to run it are impossible for a psychological, healthy human being to meet. Hmm. A psychologically healthy human being will not be able to maintain their mental health and run this game, uh, run this, run a group like this simultaneously. I'm gonna, impossible. I'm gonna I, I've yeah. lost friends because of this group. So right. let me inject, a th I know I already asked you two questions as a final question, but let me inject a third one to, to sure. that. L let's say you wanted to, and these have, have popped up, um, it's not certainly not new, and certainly since uh, the 2016 election, this idea of uh, bringing together people in person to have guided conversations or more thoughtful conversations about issues where you do, you get to know people a little bit, and then you can have conversations about, about hot button issues. Yeah. Do, do you think that uh, is as, uh, as would be as challenging for someone trying to no, moderate? I think that would be much easier. And in fact, there are these things, I forgot their names. I've gone on YouTube and seen these videos of people who do this. Like they'll bring, they'll bring up a controversial topic and they'll bring people together and moderate discussions. And as far as I can tell, they run really, really well. There's something about being online that ramps up bad behavior like exponentially i know we started off talking about that and why that's the case i'm not sure we kind of explored it a bit but i think in person forum uh fora is it plural, uh would run much better and be way less stressful for moderators frankly i think especially because if people were going to they show up they probably they know what it's about they probably signed a bunch of forms checked off a bunch of money yes they're interested yes they know what mm -hmm. they're Hang themselves into. So yeah, I do think in person, getting people together in person, face to face, is a far superior way of of um, facilitating these kinds of conversations, and I think it would be far healthier for someone running uh, something like that. Now, in terms of your other question, any words of advice for someone starting a group like this? Yes, talk to someone who's done it before, because the problems you're going to run into are impossible to anticipate when you start. As you said at the beginning, the original the guidelines, guidelines were 222 yeah. words, and if they've expanded to 3,000 yeah. with like 100 edits over the years. And yeah. every single one of those guidelines has been laboriously worked over, run by the other moderators, to create a set of guidelines that can even remotely ensure some kind of consistent, respectful, civil discourse online is a monumental task. And in, even as it stands now, they don't fill up all the holes. So what do, what do you think that means for the broader world of, of social media? We talked the other day about whether it's Facebook or Twitter or online spaces where 
you know, platforms uh, you know, have legal protection. They're not responsible for what people post, but they try with various levels of seriousness to moderate and filter what happens and, you know, whether it's hate speech or other things. But in the, the small world of, of 700 folks in this, uh, I'm say heavily moderated in that you're paying attention, not necessarily that you're squelching anybody's views. Yeah. But yeah, what can people take away from what you've learned when we engage in that conversation about what, what should Facebook do? What should Twitter do? What should uh, these other platforms do or have to do in terms of keeping tabs uh, honestly, on what's published? Bill, the, the demands on places like Twitter and Facebook are so unbelievably intense. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I mean, okay. like when I found out that, that Musk had bought Twitter, my first thought was, oh, this is going to be just a dumpster fire. He has no idea what he's getting himself into. Because right. there's, no way to, there's no way to regulate these social media groups on the basis of any kind of consistent set of principles. Right. His, his argument was that we need a place that's total free speech. and Yes, yep. but then you run into all kinds of massive problems. So what? Someone advertises how to build a bomb. Someone is rallying people to commit a crime. I mean, where do you draw the line there? And these free speech issues become so complicated. I mean, it, look, that, that's another conversation entirely. And frankly, even if we tried to have the conversation... All I would be able to do is point out just profound complications with, at every single point in every single juncture. Mm-hmm. The only reason my group works at this point is because the people who are in there have, have sort of stuck it out, know the general, have a, generally know how the group runs, um, and really must want to have good conversation because... Uh, there's just no other way they would tolerate um, everything that goes on. I mean, things have really mellowed out. You know, the, the difficult members are pretty much gone. So the people have, who are still there know how to engage in a, in a friendly or at least respectful way. And why don't we wrap up on that other question I asked you about the, the uh, insights about people and, and how they relate. Yeah. What would you, how would you summarize what you've learned <laughs> uh, well, um, was, insights into yeah. people and how they relate. I mean, you are, I mean, obviously, you already said how difficult it is to to try and keep these conversations on track, even with folks who, at least uh, on one level, appear committed to trying to have those conversations. I, but, the good news is that I I see again and again people posting really interesting questions. Um, So the good news is, yeah, I mean, insofar as people are still reaching out and still wanting to talk and still have good conversations and are still thinking and questioning and wondering about the world, I think that's a really positive uh, thing. Because good conversation can bring people together and we can learn about each other and we can have good sort of friendship. Oh, and I should mention that tons of friendships have formed over the course of these seven years. So I see people who got to know each other from the group and are friends now and are meeting outside of the group. And I love to see that, you know. So it's created a kind of, even people who hate the group and sort of bond over their hatred of fair game. <laughs> yeah, I, I even kind of like that. I mean, it, it's nice. I like, I like people getting along more than fighting and, and, and killing each other. I, I fundamentally want people to be to get along with each other. And insofar as fair game promotes people getting along, I think it's great. 
Of course, it's, it's a difficult endeavor and it doesn't work a lot of the time and a lot of people are never going to get along and there are all kinds of obstacles and difficulties that get in the way of that. But I've come to see that that's just the way this cookie crumbles. Well, I'm sure with a little more effort, you'll solve all those problems. <laughs> yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> well, great. Well, John, thanks very much for, for the conversation. I think this was uh, really useful and interesting. Thank you. Uh, I really enjoyed having this conversation. Thanks for having me on your podcast. My pleasure. So. That was John Rosen, the founder of a Facebook discussion group called Fair Game. It's open to anyone and can be found by searching Facebook groups for Fair Game. You'll also find a link on the Berkshire Argus website at berkshireargus.com. I'm Bill Shine, and thanks for listening to the Berkshire Argus podcast. I just said Berkshire Argus three times in nine seconds. <laughs>